We've been talking about different mindsets, how thoughts are constructed. And the Bible talked about an earthy, worldly mindset, meaning a, a mindset that is set in a, in a religious self-effort versus the mind of Christ. And, and here's a scripture we haven't looked at, Ephesians 4, 17. You should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their hearts. Futility of the mind. Futility in the way thoughts are constructed. Uh, futile means it's, it's not useful. It's, it's vain thoughts, uh, it, void of focus, unfocused, scattered thoughts. It said here, alienated from God, meaning alienated from God's way of thinking, their hearts being blinded. Later on, uh, Paul adds this in verse 23, be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Well, the spirit of the mind, it, it really refers to the attitude of the mind, the, the mental disposition. So the renewing of our mind is more than just getting new knowledge or getting new information. It is an attitude of the thought, the disposition of our thinking. We're talking today, as you see, highlighted behind me about a scarcity mindset. What is a scarcity mindset? Well, it's, it's fear of not having enough, uh, which leads us to hoarding, to just, you know, get all you can and can all you get and sit on the can, someone said. It's a pretty vivid description of that attitude, just is just look after number one and try to hold on to everything you have. And of course, that leads to a, a whole array of negative e imaginations. Now, in the world at large, and I'm not picking on society in that sense, it's just a fact of history, that the thinking tends to be focused on scarcity, on, on insufficient resources. We have that today. You know, we talk about uh, energy, we talk about finances, about food. So, so let me, let's just go a little bit away from our own time to illustrate this. Is this is nothing new. This is the natural mindset. You know, before we had um, electricity like we do today, before we had nuclear power, before we had oil and all that, and of course we're kind of getting out of the oil a little bit, but before we had all that, you know, there was something, a big industry, it was the whaling industry. You say, what? Whaling. You know the big whales? Remember the big killer whales? Well, you know, in, in the, for about 500 years, people heated their houses. They got light through whale oil. So, so, so harvesting whales was a big business. You know, they used the blubber of the whale to make candles and lubricants and many of the things that we use plastic for today. Uh, it, it was derived from the whale. The whale bones were used to for fine china dishes, expensive dishes, uh, for, for women's corsets. You know, they wanted to have look like they were very skinny in the waist, and so corsets was a big business. So, so the whale was a very important in the economy. I mean, this is ancient. I, I know it sounds like I'm describing ancient times, and in a way I am. So if you look at 
about 100 and, yeah, 160 years ago, 1859, there were 950 huge whale ships harvested over 10,000 whales in the North Atlantic alone. And that year, there was like this huge shortage. They said, we're running out of whales. The, you could say the whale market collapsed. And at the same time, there were announcements that, that the, the supply of coal, it would end by the end of that century, by, by, by the year 1900. There was massive fear. I'm saying there's nothing new here. Massive fear. But you know, what are we going to do? We're running out of whales. And then, of course, that happened to be the same year, 1859, when the first oil well was drilled. And then, then that supplied energy. But then 110 years later, and some of you old enough to remember this, 1973 to around 1981, there was all this oil crisis, the oil embargo, and, 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 and oil reserves. They were being depleted, and people said that there would be no more oil after 1990. That's a long time ago. I remember. I remember I went to school. I heard teachers say that we're going to run out of oil by 1990. Well, even today, then we're trying to get out of the oil. Many are. We, we still have about a hundred years of oil supply and known resources. You know, back, you go back then in the early 1970s, mid-1970s, they were saying that petrol will be gone after 1992. Copper, all the copper resources will be depleted by 1993. Natural gas depleted by 1993. Gold by 1987. There was this scarcity thinking. That's not enough. And there was always about not enough food. We're going to run out of food and people keep having babies. And, and you know, you still have that kind of thinking today. In fact, I saw the statistic just from, from this last year that in our country, uh, we waste, just throw away so much food. It says, it's one place that he said that 40% of the food that is produced goes to waste. Hundreds of pounds of food are wasted per person annually. And in countries we used to think of, a, of, of not having enough food, like in India, they discuss about their obesity problem. F food is discarded to keep the prices up. So there's always been this push, this fear-mongering. We're running out. We're not going to have enough. And And... I never bought into that because it's rooted in a false idea. And that false idea is that God created a planet that is somehow insufficient for human habitation. It, it, it causes us to think that well, we're going to run out. Bad times are coming. You see, the people of Israel exemplify this in Psalm 78. And I quote selectively from that Psalm. Can God prepare a table in the wilderness? This was their discussion. You know, I wonder if God can supply our needs. Can he give bread also? Can God provide for his people? And, and this was the reasoning. I wonder if God is going to pull us through one more time. I wonder, you know, in the next couple of months, if God is going to be, you know, powerful enough to make it happen for us. And it says, yes, again and again, they tempted God and limited the Holy One. So they, they, they had this concept, this idea, this, this mindset that was rooted in scarcity and, and rooted in a negative image of God, as if God had not put us on a planet that would be able to support us. Also, a negative image of ourselves. In other words, if God had put us on a planet 
where our needs will not be met, that means we, we, we are, we're not so much loved, are we? And, and, and so it's rooted in this, God didn't care enough about us. You see, what we think of ourselves and God is very important. I say like this, we behave according to our inward self-image, whether it's true or not. If we, if we see ourselves as loved, uh, then we'll behave in a certain way. If we see ourselves as unwanted, unloved, we'll behave in a certain way. So, so how we think about it. And if we have a scarcity mindset, if, if our approach to life is, you better watch out because we're going to run out, it's going to affect you whether that is true or not. And I say it's not true. You know, and so when it comes to serving God, there's all kinds of examples of this kind of a mindset. Let me give you one here. I've heard it said, you may have heard it said, real Christians care about souls, not about money. Doesn't that sound like a very, very spiritual? People would say, oh, Peter Youngren, you know, you shouldn't ask people to give money for the gospel. We just care about souls. And if you think that, you'll never think about any money you'll, you, you, because you want to be a good Christian. But ultimately, I suggest that's a selfish mentality. That's a mentality rooted in scarcity. When I think about the billions of people, never mind millions, billions who need help in so many areas, including with the gospel, to, to talk like that is nonsense. Here's another Here's another statement that I want to make. The love of money, not money is a root of evil. And the way I phrase that is because people say, well, the Bible says, doesn't the good book say that money is the root of all evil? No, it says the love of money is a root of evil. And so you see, it's not about not having money. It's about loving it. It's about hoarding it. That's a root of evil. That breeds all kinds of pain and despair. Now, I, I say instead, God is a good God, and He put us on a planet of abundance. Uh, and, 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 you know, just about the time they thought they were running out of one resource, then you discover another one. And that's the way it's going to be. You see, God's mindset is not scarcity. It's abundance. I, I love reading Genesis 1, and I just give you one excerpt in verse 20. It says, let the waters abound with abound, abundance. It's like the word abound and abundance is in the same sentence. It's like, do you get it? God is a God of abundance. And then verse 22, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the seas and let the birds multiply. Fill, multiply, abound. John 15, 8, by this my Father is glorified that you bear a little fruit. No, much fruit. You see, there's a limited thinking and there's the God kind of thinking. The Apostle Paul, he was under some duress. He met some resistance and he was kind of thinking of leaving town where he was. But in Acts chapter 18, verse 10, God says to him, I have many people in this city. Many, not, not just a few. Now, a few would have been worth Paul's effort, but God says, I have many. You know, some people have this idea, it's just going to be us, few, us four and no more. Now, I know I have some dear friends who, who, who have a church, 
and they call it the remnant church, the remnant of, of this and the remnant of that. You know, I could never go to a, this remnant thing. Rem, that, that's an Old Testament expression. There was a time in the, referring to a time in the history of Israel. Now, I tell you, I believe heaven is going to be full of people. I, I believe in abundance. I believe billions of people coming to Christ, your family members. I believe our best days are yet to come. Jesus saved the best wine for the last. I have, I have a big God, and it gives me reason to think big. Let, let me just illustrate this one more time. Uh, back in 1990, that's a lot of years ago now, I was living in the Niagara Peninsula. I loved the people down in the Niagara Peninsula. But, you know, at that time, our then Prime Minister of Canada, Brian Mulroney, had negotiated a free trade agreement with the United States. Well, that brought about all kinds of doomsday predictions in Niagara. They said, our wine industry, it's so important here in the Niagara region, is up there with tourism, you know, people come to see Niagara Falls, and they said, but, but you know, the wine industry is just as important. It's going to collapse because, you know, we're not going to be able to compete against the wines from, from California and, 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 you know, uh, more southern uh, parts. And so there was all this scarcity mindset. Oh, what are we going to do? We're going to have to, you know, put, come up with a new industry. And it went on and on and again. The truth of what really happened was the wine industry in Niagara has boomed. I mean, they're mar when, when we signed a free trade agreement with the United States, it wasn't little Canada. It, it, was, it, was, it was big time. Our market increased a thousand percent because they have ten times as many people as we do. And the wine industry just prospered. They, they came up with new ideas like ice wine. You see, the, 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 the human propensity is, is, is scarcity. But I'm saying it's not God's way of thinking. Let's look at, at, at Joseph, one of the characters in Scripture who really speaks of a prosperity mindset. Look, look at Joseph. I'm going to move fast here, so catch, catch this. As a young man, because of the envy of his brothers, he was sold to Ishmaelites, which were not necessarily really that friendly with, with Jacob's family. And these Ishmaelites took Joseph uh, to Egypt, and they sold him to a man there, a prominent man in the Egyptian society called Potiphar. He was an officer of Pharaoh. So here, here, here's Joseph, dearly beloved character out of Scripture, now he's sold as a slave. I'm, you, you talk about a dismal situation. And, and what happened? Genesis 39 says, the Lord was with Joseph, and he was a successful man. His master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord made all he did to prosper in his hand. Now let's, let's have a little fact reality check. Joseph was about as low on the social ladder as you could come. He'd come from a dysfunctional family, wouldn't you agree? A family where some brothers sell off another brother as a slave is, I would say, is, is almost nice to call them dysfunctional. He'd been kidnapped. He was held in chains. He really had no education for where he was going. He had no money. He probably was a language bearer. They spoke a, a different language in Egypt. And, and so Joseph had every reason in one sense to be bitter, to have a negative mindset, to think negative thoughts. He had every reason in the world. Look at me. How could this have happened to me? 
I'm stuck here. I could have had such a good life. But here's what it is. Just because circumstances are lousy, we don't have to wallow in lousy thoughts. Did, did you see that? Yes, circumstances may be lousy, but we don't have to let them choke us with, with thoughts of negativity. And if you read there in Genesis 39, you know, it's an amazing story. It, when he got into the house as a slave to this, this Potiphar's house, he put Joseph in charge of everything. It actually says that the only thing Potiphar, this is in the Bible, I don't have time to read it all, the only thing that Potiphar had to be concerned about is what he was going to have for dinner. <laughs> he had to pick something off the menu. As far as the whole business that Potiphar was running, Joseph ran the whole thing. Wow, isn't that something? And then he was betrayed. I won't go into the whole story. He was lied about. Potiphar's wife wanted to have sexual relationship with Joseph. And Potiphar wasn't very smart. He didn't see what his wife was up to. And, and the whole story ended up that uh, falsely accused Joseph ends up in prison. And the same thing happens again. I mean, how much lower can you get? You know, if anybody could have said, if I could just have a good break. Well, <laughs> Joseph had everything but a good break. I mean, he, 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 now he's a, he's a prisoner. You know, he's, he's an immigrant. He's a prisoner. Doesn't speak the language maybe fully. And, 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 and he's about as low as you can get in society. And it says in verse 22, the keeper of the prison committed all the prisoners to Joseph. Whatever they did there was his doing. The keeper of the prison didn't look into anything that was under Joseph's authority because the Lord was with him and whatever he did, the Lord made it to prosper. So again, his same result. There's something about Joseph's thinking. There's something about Joseph's way of acting. The, the warden went on a vacation, the prison warden, the prisoner, Joseph, ran the prison. So you could say, it said here twice, that Joseph was prosperous. He was successful. God was with him. So you could say, well, how was he prosperous? What was so prosperous about Joseph? He didn't have any money, obviously. He didn't have his freedom. He didn't have his family. He didn't have wealth. He didn't have any formal authority. So how was he, how is that prosperous? Well, I suggest that there's one thing Joseph had. He had a prosperous mindset, not a scarcity mindset, not a thinking, oh, woe be to me. Look at this. Oh, how bad it is. I've had so many bad breaks. There was no sign of Joseph crying on somebody's shoulder. He had a prosperous prosperity mindset. You see, prosperity starts in our mind. You know, there are many reasons why people can be in a tough spot. Maybe you're in a tough spot. I'm not in no way speaking down on that at all. There can be many reasons. Lack of education. Maybe people didn't have a chance to, to educate themselves and they may have a good mind, but the opportunity wasn't there. Maybe because of the country you, you, you were born in. It could be a a broken family situation. It could be that someone was raised in a crime-ridden neighborhood that affected your family, and of course, that has its effect. It could be addiction, alcohol, drug addiction, some other addiction, corruption. Some people come from countries that are very corrupt. And so that, that results in bad things. It could be mental illness. It could be a, a, another reason. 
uh, why people may not prosper, and this is something that you can do something about, is that they don't have a life plan. It hasn't even entered their mind that they should have a plan for life. But you see, once you, you, you begin to say, I'm embracing the mind of Christ, I see a new way of thinking. It doesn't matter what thinking I was raised with. I'm a new creation in Christ, and I have the mind of Christ. I'm going to begin to think differently. So prosperity starts in the mind. And then one thing we learn from Joseph is prosper where you are. When he was a slave in Potiphar's house, he prospered there. When he was in the prison, I mean, he couldn't get any lower. He prospered there. You see, I'll say a key, and this has been brought out, and I think it's so useful. Pursue responsibility, and you will be promoted. Even be considered indispensable. You know, Joseph, for, for, the, for the warden of the prison to put him totally in charge of all the other prisoners so that the warden of the prison, he went on vacation. It says, yeah, Joseph is in charge. He's a, he must have been very responsible. He was like saying, I'll do this. I'll do that. Act responsibly. Uh, instead of having an attitude, oh, you know, if only things would have been different or, or I don't want any responsibility. You know, I want to say to you, you want to prosper, take responsibility. Be the per person in your place of work that if something is needed to be done, you say, I'll do it. Oh, I'll help out in that. After a while, you know, if there's a cutback or something, you won't be the one that's terminated because you're indispensable. We need so-and-so here because this person takes responsibility. You know, I look at our ministry, World Impact Ministries. I think one of the keys to the success that God by His Spirit has given us around the world of seeing millions come to Christ is because I've had this sense of responsibility. I feel responsible for gospel advancement to the world. I, I, I got it as a teenager. I feel responsible for people who never heard the gospel. And I think our partners feel the same way. They say, well, uh, Peter seems to, he, he's acting like he's responsible. And I am. I've, I've felt it for, it's not a fleeting thing, come and go. No, I felt it for a long time. And, and people say, I want to be a part of that. You see, now Joseph there in the prison, he had wisdom to interpret dreams. And to make a long story short, short you know, he interpreted dreams for the prisoners and things came to pass as he interpreted. And later on, that was brought to Pharaoh's attention because Joseph had a dream that applied to Pharaoh, the king of Egypt and all of the country. Here's the gist of it, Genesis 41. The, the interpretation of the dream was seven years of great plenty will come. After them, seven years of famine. And all the plenty will be forgotten. And the famine will deplete the land. I mean, that's amazing. Here's a, a man as low as you can get. And he says, I, I see 14 years into the future. It's going to be boom time. Seven years. And then economic disaster for seven years. Well, that time became opportunity time for Joseph. I mean, it's amazing. I wish I had time to teach the whole story, but I'm time limited. Joseph took lead in finances, in commodities trading of grain, etc., real estate, and he set up a fair tax system. It's all recorded in Genesis 47. I mean, you see, with God, you can prosper in, in bad times. You know, I just wrote a book recently, um, uh, Great Wealth Transfer. 
and, and get a hold of that book. You probably can see it on the screen there. Uh, get a hold of it, and, and, and it'll tell you much more about this. But let, let me hurry. I talked about Joseph, but there's a greater example than Joseph. It's Jesus. And Jesus, what, what a beautiful mindset of abundance. Well, let me point out some things about Jesus. You know that Jesus operated an organization. I put one scripture reference there. You can see Luke 9. Uh, he, he was sending people to do work. He had, he had workers. And, and he discussed funding for his work. One time he said, uh, don't bring anything. Your needs are going to be met. Another time he talked about how they had to sell certain things to prepare for a journey. It's amazing. You know, Jesus had 12 apostles and probably their family traveled along. And what amazes me is that one was recognized as an official, a treasurer. Jesus didn't have a marketing director. He, he didn't have a secretary. He didn't have a vice president of the organization. He had a treasurer. Well, it must mean that they handled some finances. According to the Bible, it says even the accounting department, which was headed up by the treasurer of Judas, they, they were siphoning off money, but the ministry still continued. Think about that. Jesus had partners, people who stood with him. You know, just, just for interest's sake, because I know some people get annoyed by this, Jesus even dressed nicely. <laughs> at the crucial time, at his crucifixion, <laughs> the Bible highlights this and says, you know, they gambled for his clothes. So what I'm saying to you, Jesus the, the, the exuded abundance. Maybe no scripture more shows this than John chapter 6, where it says, Jesus saw a great multitude coming toward him, and he said to Philip, where shall we buy bread that these may eat? Remember, this is the occasion of the 5,000 men, not counting women and children, probably 15,000 people in all. And it says, this Jesus said to test Philip. For he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered, 200 denarii, denarius day's wage, 200 days wages worth of bread is not sufficient that every one of them may have a little. And one of his disciples, Andrew, said, there is a boy here with five barley loaves and two small fish. But what are they among so many? You see, Philip and Andrew here represent and depict the natural mind. The Bible says the natural mind cannot comprehend the things of God. The, the natural mind of Philip and Andrew uh, does not include God. They, they're just governed by their five senses, what they hear and see and feel and touch and smell. Uh, and they're only able to say, well, you know, even if, even if we had 200 days uh, wages worth of bread, not enough. At best, everybody just got a taste. It's like saying, you know, I have a big family of, of seven people and, and one popsicle isn't enough. I, I suppose that's true. But you see, Philip didn't consider Jesus Christ. And then Andrew adds his two bits. He says, well, do the math. Look at the supply versus the need here. We got five bread and two fish. We got 5,000 men and families. Like I said, maybe 15,000 people. It's not very much. Even if you gave it to the disciples, they would only get uh, five-twelfths of a bread per, per, per disciple and one-sixth of a fish. And so he's just looking at the natural, what's available. And we can do that today. People talk about inflation is coming, lack, scarcity. So what do we see about the mind of Jesus here? Well, we see, first of all, Jesus knew what he would do. I call that an established mind. You can see it on the screen right there. 
That means his mind was fixed. His mind was settled. Not, not skirting about in every direction. Jesus had an established mind. And I think, again, when I think of our ministry, we, we've been going at this, focusing that every human being has a right to hear the gospel at least once and to grow in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Then he says, another principle here, Jesus made the people sit down in the thick grass. You know that thick grass is a picture of rest, a mind at rest. And uh, we talk a lot about Hebrews chapter 4, and uh, it talks about resting from our own works. And part of the mind of Christ is to learn to rest in what Christ has done. As long as we're trying to make it happen, trying to help God along, then we are not at rest. And so I would encourage you, read Hebrews chapter 4 again and again and about, about that there's, there's, there's a restfulness, that faith is not panic. It's not like, oh, what are we going to do? Oh, God, do something. No, it's resting in what Christ has done. And then in this story of the feeding of the thousands of people, Jesus activated others to feed the multitude. It was a mind for action and for work. You see, resting in Christ doesn't make us lazy or laid back or sloppy. It makes us more active. The Apostle Paul says, I labor more than all of you. He says, but it's not really me. It's not that I'm trying so hard. It's the grace of God that's in me. Another principle I see in this story is that Jesus ensured that everyone was fully satisfied. A mind of abundance, mind of abundance, uh, meaning he didn't say that, well, let's just give everybody a little bit to tie them over. Let's just give them enough so they can, you know, a little bite. No, he says, I want everybody to eat, have second portion, have third, have fourth, fifth portion. Can you imagine if we in today's money were to feed 15,000 people and say it would cost $10 a, a person, I suppose, if you're going to give them a lunch even, that's $150,000 worth of food. And then, then Jesus was even environmentally friendly. He said, I don't want anything to be wasted, so collect all the leftovers. And there were 12 baskets left, left over. I mean, to me, this shows how Jesus' mindset was freed from scarcity. There was nothing small. There was nothing like, let's just get by. Let's see how we can kind of get out of this tight squeeze we are in and at the very minimum commitment. No, there was a abundance. And so the mind of Christ is not scarcity, it's abundance. Kind of an unlimited, big thinking. And even here, it says, you know, all these people were fed, minimum 5,000, as I suggested, maybe 15,000. They were all fed. Well, that, that means there was a work of grace. Imagine if Jesus had put a stipulation or a qualification saying that, well, if you're going to be fed, you have to, you have to be one of those who, who, who pray for an hour every day. You have to be one of those who have been going to the synagogue, to the temple at the prescribed times faithfully. You know, that would have eliminated a lot of But Jesus just indiscriminately allowed his grace to flow. And now I'm digressing for just a moment, for just a few seconds. Today, God's abundance of grace is flowing to you. Everything I've been teaching pivots off of receiving the new life from Christ. Unless we are born again, receive the new life, we can't even see how awesome 
God's love and provision and the mind of Christ 